so um, very much for joining us today for the um, Strauss Center's final speaker for the year. I'm Celeste Borkeventer. I'm the Associate Director of the Strauss Center. I can't think of a more appropriate person to be the icing on the cake and the cherry on top of a really terrific speaker series that we've had this semester. So today we have the great uh, privilege and uh, pleasure of hearing from Ms. Emma Skye. Um, I first met Emma at the Republican Palace in Baghdad in 2004. We were both serving with the Coalition Provisional Authority. And Emma's one of those people that you meet and you immediately know that she's somebody extraordinary and that she's really a special person. I think she had already been there a year by the time I, I got there. Um, and it's been a real pleasure to be her friend for 10 years now and watch her gain the admiration and the respect um, that she so deserves. I'm sure you read her incredibly impressive bio. Um, so I won't recapitulate all of the points here, but she's one of the most thoughtful and keen observers of Iraq and the wider Middle East. She served in Iraq as a deeply respected advisor um, to the American military for something like five years in total, and she was a key member of the coalition involved in the surge. She speaks Arabic, Hebrew, and French, and her formal education was at Oxford, Alexandria in Egypt, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Liverpool. She's a truly intrepid traveler as well, um, and she spends time talking with people in the region at all levels. She's not a captive to the elites. She talks to cab drivers and everyone, uh, from leaders to cab drivers and everyone in between. Um, I don't think there's anyone with a better feel for what's really going in Iraq, on in Iraq right now, and what's happened in the region over the last decade. She's now a senior fellow at Yale's, Yale University's Jackson Institute, where she lectures on the new Iraq and Middle East politics. She was made an officer of the British Empire in 2008, and though she tells me that this does not entitle her to a title, she remains Lady Sky to those of us who know and love her. So I had a wonderful, wonderful time talking with her for this weekend, and I know you'll enjoy the great insights she's going to share with us today. So with that, please join me with a warm welcome from Ms. Emma Sky. Thank you very much for that introduction, Celeste. And it really is a great honor to be here. Everyone told me, you know, Austin is a great city. It's not like other places in Texas. <laughs> it's only the second time in my life I've been to Texas. In fact, the first time was to Fort Hood to participate in a military exercise. And, well, Colleen was a little bit of a shock. So I, I have to say, Austin is fantastic. Sorry about Colleen. <laughs> During my time in Iraq, I served alongside many soldiers from, um, from Texas, from the 4th Infantry Division. And the helicopter pilots who flew me around the country always had the Lone Star flag in the window and always told me that Texas was different, Texas is special. So I am really pleased to be here. And it's great to see Celeste again. Celeste said we met in Baghdad and, you know, Celeste, was a unique type of person for me. Because she, like, she knew how to shoot, and she had a gun and things like that. <laughs> and I'd never spent any time in America or with Americans. And the idea that civilians and civilian women actually had guns and could shoot was kind of a little bit weird. <laughs> Celeste went on to be the political advisor to General Corelli, who was the Corps commander. And I followed in her footsteps and became the political advisor to General Corelli's replacement, General ODM, who's the current Chief of Staff of the Army. And everybody, you know, when they meet me, they say, oh, you're not that small, really. And I say, no, I'm average height for Europe. <laughs> General Odierno is like six foot six. 
So it's him who is abnormal size, and I am normal size, I think. So there's been much debate and discussion about why we went to war in Iraq in 2003. But less has been said about how we left Iraq. Iraq has dropped off the radar screen and out of the public consciousness. I think there's a strong desire to put it behind us, assign it to history. For many, the narrative they choose to believe is we overthrew Saddam, went through a bad patch, one with the surge, brought the troops home. If only it were that simple. So what I'd like to do in my talk is to discuss the state of Iraq today. I then want to turn to the impact of the Iraq war on the region. And finally, I want to identify the lessons that I think we should take from our intervention in Iraq. And afterwards, we'll be very happy to take questions. So it's been over a year now since the last US troops left Iraq. And I've been back to Iraq a few times since then as a tourist traveling around the country just to gain a sense of the Iraq that we left behind. And the most visible change that I noticed was the increasing prosperity. I saw new cars on the road, flourishing markets, lots of imported goods in the shops. And the streets were busy and crowded. Iraqis were walking around. They were sitting in cafes, visiting parks with their children. And you can see construction, hotels, all these buildings going up. And if you look at the statistics of oil exports, Iraq is now up to its highest level of oil exports in decades. But beneath the surface, all is not well. As I traveled around the country and spoke to a whole range of Iraqis, many claimed that the US had lost Iraq to Iran, and that it was Iran that had driven the US out of Iraq. And it's a familiar refrain that I hear when I travel around the region. The decline in US influence has been met by a rise in Iran's influence. But despite that, Iraqis still believe that America does have influence in the country. And they can't fathom why, after so much investment in blood and treasure, America would lose interest in Iraq and walk away. And so I frequently heard conspiracy theories, such as there's a secret agreement between America and Iran, or a secret deal between Joe Biden and Prime Minister Maliki to divide up Iraq. Iraqis I spoke to were fearful that their country is disintegrating. They complained bitterly about the political elites. I had so many tales of corruption. People who had come back to Iraq in 2003 had made masses of money and were taking that money outside the country. And normal Iraqis complained that their politicians were just driven by greed, and none of them spoke about the national interest. None of them were thinking of 
Iraqi national identity, the good of the nation of Iraq. And they said their elites remain separate from society. They drive their fancy cars, big convoys, lots of bodyguards. They've got their own private electricity generators. And they travel abroad frequently. And the members of parliament receive very high salaries. Yet many don't even turn up for the meetings. There's little process, sorry, little progress on legislation and poor oversight of the executive. And relations between the elites have severely deteriorated. In the years since US forces departed, Prime Minister Maliki has sought to eliminate his rivals, subvert the democratic institutions that were established as the check and balance on the power of the executive, and to concentrate power. His supporters say, look, he's having to consolidate power in order to prevent the country from disintegrating. But his opponents claim that he's becoming a dictator and driving the country to destruction. Instead of pushing for national reconciliation to make Iraq a buffer rather than a battlefield of the regional power struggles that are going on, Maliki's response is turning his fear of a regional sectarian war into a self-fulfilling prophecy. When I visited Baghdad just over a year ago, I could not stay with the Iraqi general I had previously stayed with, as he had been purged from the military, allegedly for being too close to the Americans. So instead, I accepted an invitation from one of Iraq's most influential and respected ministers to stay with him. Parked outside was a tank with its turret pointed at the house. I spent two hours trying to negotiate with this tank in order to get past. And I think I'm pretty good at negotiations, but tanks are very difficult to negotiate with. The tank wouldn't move. So in the end, it took a phone call to the Prime Minister's office to get authorization for the tank commander to let me, unarmed, pass the tank into the house where I was staying. And what had the tank commander been told that his mission was? In December, some of this same minister's bodyguards were arrested and charges of terrorism were made against this minister. And this sparked mass arrests, sorry, mass protests, as Sunnis took to the streets to demand the end of what they consider a government policy to marginalize them. These demonstrations have continued, revealing the widespread sense of alienation that Sunnis feel in the new Iraq. Now, as with other protests in the Arab world, they were initially driven by legitimate grievances. <coughs> But against the backdrop of provincial elections, little was done to address the legitimate concerns of the protesters, despite calls to do so from the top Shia cleric, Ayatollah Sistani. <coughs> Politicians instead exploited the demonstrations for electoral gains. 
Maliki took the opportunity to distract attention away from the lack of services and rampant corruption in the country. He presented himself as a defender of the Shia in the face of Sunni regional powers intent on overthrowing Shia regimes. Assad in Syria first, then Iran. Sunni politicians, for their part, sought to benefit from the demonstrations to rail against government oppression in order to gain support for their own electoral campaigns. And so provoked by Maliki's policies and inspired by events in Syria, there's a real risk that the situation in Iraq is spiraling out of control. Maliki has removed the wedge that the US military drove between the Sunni extremists and the Sunni mainstream during the surge. The credibility of Sunni politicians has declined as they've been so undermined, and they've proven unable to prevent discrimination against their constituents. Just last week, the Iraqi army entered Hawija, which is just about there, near Kirkuk. It's in the province of Kirkuk. And it's a town that I know well, because I was responsible for Kirkuk in 2003, 2004, and I was most recently back there last summer. So the Iraqi army entered Hawija to arrest people accused of attacking Iraqi security forces. In the ensuing violence, so far, it's been going on for four or five days, over 200 people have been reported killed. There are now reports of desertions from the Iraqi army. So the Iraqi army units that have been sent up to this area, this is where people are deserting from. And what's been happening is that Kurdish Peshmerga forces have been moving down to take over those places vacated, or around Kirkuk that have been vacated by the Iraqi army. This is in the disputed territories. So some people think this is now Kurds making, taking advantage of the situation to grab land, land which the Kurds think is theirs, but which Baghdad and the Arabs in the disputed territories believe is not theirs. So while this has been going on, tribes, particularly in Ambar province, are now rearming and forming militias to protect themselves from the Iraqi army. <coughs> Five Iraqi soldiers were killed in Anbar over the weekend, and the whole province now has been put under curfew. Ten satellite channels, including Al Jazeera, have been banned over the weekend, accused of spreading sectarianism. And so far today, I checked the news about an hour ago, so far today, five bombs have exploded Najaf, Karbala, this area, killing dozens. So they're targeting Shia areas. And the Speaker of the Iraqi Parliament has called for the government to resign and early elections. So the situation is dire. And yet, how many people really know that this is all going on at the moment? So what has been the impact of the war in Iraq on the region? Now, the war removed Saddam, an extraordinarily violent dictator who had mass murdered his own people 
and invaded two neighboring countries. The architects of the war had predicted that Iraq, the war in Iraq, would change the whole Middle East. It certainly has, but not in the ways that they envisaged. The collapse of the state in 2003 created a power vacuum that was filled by militias. This led to a bloody sectarian war and the deaths of over 100,000 Iraqis. This has accentuated sectarianism in the region to record highs. The invasion and occupation of Iraq inspired, motivated, and radicalized some Muslims across the world. And radicalized them to fight the US occupation of Iraq and the new Shia-led government. And this led to the evolution and growth of jihadi groups. Today, experienced jihadis, both homegrown and foreign, are fighting in Iraq and Syria. So Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Jabhat al-Nusra in Syria. The new Iraq has not set a model for the region as a beacon of democracy, as the architects had promised. Regimes in the region warned that the alternative to them was mayhem, as in Iraq. And despite a decade of US presence in Iraq, the type of government there is reverting back to a familiar pattern, in which those who capture the state use the oil rents, which are 95% of the government's budget, to extend patronage, to build other security services, and to oppress political opposition by force. Did the Iraq War inspire the Arab Spring? I traveled through the Arab Spring countries in 2011, meeting with protesters in Egypt, Tunisia, and Syria. Their grievances were local, lack of jobs, government corruption. When I spoke to them and asked about Iraq, they discarded that. That wasn't their concern, it wasn't what had inspired them, it wasn't a model that they looked at. But it is possible that there is some subconscious connection that Iraq has shown that change is possible, that dictators can fall. It's possible, I don't think we can tell. The Iraq war has led to a dramatic change in the regional balance of power. So the toppling of Saddam's vehemently anti-Iranian regime and the weakness of the new Iraq has enabled the resurgence of Iran. And many in the region view the new Iraq as an Iranian proxy because it's led by Shia Islamists who spent much of their time in exile in Iran and fought on Iran's side in the Iran-Iraq war. And the resurgence of Iran has set off a regional power struggle between Iran on one side and Saudi Qatar Turkey supported by the US on the other side. And it's this competition for power that's playing out with tragic consequences in Syria, where over 70,000 Syrians have died already. There's a growing sense that the conflicts in Syria and Iraq 
are merging into one. A growing narrative of Shia regimes backed by Iran <coughs> battling against Sunni populations, including Al-Qaeda. <coughs> and so we may be witnessing the breakdown of the post-World War I settlement and the nation-states established by the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And this could have massive implications <coughs> across the region, affecting not only Syria and Iraq, but also Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Turkey, and the Kurds. So what are the lessons that we should learn from our intervention in Iraq? I think the primary lesson should be about the limitations of our power. And it's our civilian leaders who have the most to learn about setting realistic goals and drawing up well-resourced plans based on rational assumptions. So this requires a deep understanding of the capabilities of our different instruments of national power and of the limitations of external actors in foreign lands. Importantly, we need to recognize that it's all about their politics, stupid. An agreement among all the elites is essential to gain widespread support for the new order. The essence of conflict in Iraq, as in many places, is competition between different groups for power and resources in a weak state. But we framed it in terms of good guys and bad guys tried to help those that we regarded as the good guys to defeat the bad guys. And those excluded from power sought to undermine the new order that we were trying to build up. And we thought that elections would bestow legitimacy on the new regime. We didn't pay adequate attention to brokering an inclusive agreement among the elites, nor the <coughs> institutions building up the state to manage the natural competition between different communities. I always say with my students, imagine what would happen in America if a power invaded, removed the states, removed all security forces, what would happen? And very quickly you hear, sort of, well, we'd form a gang in LA and we'd do this in New York. Any country, what it is that the state does to provide that framework. Remove that framework, you go to a Hobbesian world. Instead, we relied on the US military to counter the insurgencies that our policies had created. And we thought that security would come from building up the capacity of the Iraqi security forces to crush opposition to the new regime. Today, around one million are in the Iraqi security forces. And this is out of a population of around 30 million. So it can be argued that we helped recreate the same type of regime that we overthrew, just with different guys in charge. So not even the most successful counterinsurgency tactics can deliver permanent change or irreversible momentum if they're not part of an overall political strategy. The gains that the US military made during the surge at great cost have since been lost. Sustainable security comes from a political agreement 
and a social contract between government and the people, guaranteed and upheld by security forces. They can't do it on their own. So we need to realize that nation building is long and hard, and we are not good at it. We need to identify what are the critical priorities. How can we influence? Where to exert our political capital? We try to do far too much and undermine the leaders, sorry, undermine the locals who need to lead it. There is no mythical cadre of civilians who can be parachuted into other people's countries to fix them. We spent over $3 trillion on the Iraq war. And as I've traveled across Iraq over the last year, there was little to show for it. Interventions require legitimacy at local, regional, and international levels. And while the rationale for intervening should always be based on our interpretation of national interests, the levels of support will influence its chances of success. The legitimacy of the Iraq intervention was disputed from the outset and did irreparable damage to US reputation. All interventions, all interventions have unintended consequences. And it's very difficult to predict beforehand what these might be. But the lesson from Iraq is we shouldn't lack imagination. No officials have been held accountable for the decisions to go to war in Iraq, nor for, for the mishandling of the occupation. There has been no inquiry, no bipartisan assessment. And I think America owes it to those who served there and to the 4,500 military who gave their lives to seek to learn the right lessons for the future. So thank you. with uh, the line that no one's being held accountable, but from the very beginning we put in institutions, particularly Seeger, which was there to document all of the problems, and it seems to be interesting the lack of reaction to fairly well documentation of uh, poor policy uh, decisions, inept management, and a certain amount of out-and-out -out fraud a few people have been prosecuted. Why do you think that is? They have a good starting point, they have the documentation. It's interesting. I mean, I think the SIGA has done very good work, but the SIGA has really been following where the money went. So money we pledge, how money is spent. There's been nobody or nobody that has actually looked at the strategy, how that strategy was developed. Was the strategy successful? Is all the money that we're spending, we can trace where the inputs are going. Are the inputs having the desired outputs? Are the desired outputs contributing to a strategy? So the measurement has really been on inputs, not on outputs, outcomes, strategy. And there hasn't been big demand to hold people account. Yes, you've got people down at low levels, fraud on projects, 
who've been jailed, but not the people who were responsible for putting them in such circumstances, deploying troops without a strategy. No one has been held accountable for that. I just wanted to ask if you could comment on the ethno-sectarian composition of the Iraqi army and if that's the problem, that it's not representative of the population and it's mainly a, a tool for the, the parties in power rather than a defender of the nation. I think the challenge of building up a national army is how can you build up a national army if you haven't got the nation as such? All the political parties after 2003 were based on sector ethnicity. Before it had been the Ba'ath Party, the party of the country, supposedly not sectarian, supposedly Iraqi. But after 2003, there were really very, very few who tried to be a cross-country party. They were all based on sector or ethnicity. And the way that the new Iraqi was recruited well, the old Iraqi, first of all, was dismissed. The new Iraqi army was recruited by bringing in militias belonging to different political parties, then recruiting back the old Iraqi army. There wasn't trust in the state. You didn't have politicians talking about Iraq and Iraqiness. So how can you have an Iraqi army that is national as such in the absence of that? The US tried hard to bring in balance into the different security forces. But some security forces are recruited locally and will represent those communities. Others, different communities, decided where they wanted to put their people. So when you look at the security forces, Iraqi army that's in the disputed territories, you'll see it's got a high representation of Kurds, because that's where Kurdish regional government wanted to get Kurds in, was here. Very few Kurds in units down here. And so if the Prime Minister wants to order an attack somewhere here or somewhere there, he's going to use units whose loyalty he trusts, so it's loyalty to him. The desertions that we're hearing here at the moment, some will be um, Sunni Arabs in the Iraqi army who don't want to fight relatives. Some will be Shia who just don't believe in this fight. It's, you know, there are all different communities are represented in the army, but where different units are deployed, that's where the, the politics comes into it. Thank you for that. I know that was um, enlightening and sobering. Um, I, I think one of the challenges about Iraq after the American invasion is where, whether there's some sort of tipping point beyond which the country, you know, quote, falls apart and what that actually looks like. Because there's been violence since U.S. forces departed pretty much continuously. Um, you know, things are a bit messy, there's corruption, and those seem to be sort of almost permanent features. But I think what's unclear is what, what could change that could fundamentally cause a breakdown in the situation, and what might that break, I'm not asking you to speculate, but what that breakdown might look like. Now, we've heard from, People are very knowledgeable in the energy world that the Kurds will, that this, this is all going to come to a head when the Kurds 
um, start making deals on oil deals, and they would like to receive more of the proceeds of those deals than the central government of Baghdad is willing to permit, and that that could be your turning point, your break point. Anyway, I'm just, I, it, it's hard for me to see, I could see somebody saying, this is all very true, and this is all very sobering, but you know what, it's Iraq, it's a mess, and it's gonna be a mess. So when, when are we at a crisis moment, I suppose? I think we are at a crisis moment. But this is not crisis as usual, which has been what Iraq has been for a long time. This has gone beyond crisis as usual. And there's no US military there to jump in the middle and try and calm things down. So there's two big ways that Iraq will fall apart. One is to do with a pipeline that has been discussed between Turkey and directly to Iraqi Kurdistan. Now, at the moment, Iraqi Kurdistan receives 17% of the central budget of Baghdad. And the thinking being that getting 17% of the whole pie is more than 100% of the Kurdish pie. But the Kurdish pie actually has big potential, really big potential. And according to the Kurdish estimates, they reckon you know, by 2015 that what they could get from this would be more than 17% from the total. And every year they've got to renegotiate with Baghdad for their 17%, so it's always used to lever over them. So they have already got international oil deals now. They've signed them, much to the anger of Baghdad. The problem they have is they can't get their oil out through pipelines, so sometimes they're smuggling and trucking. But if this direct pipeline goes, that means they could become more autonomous from Baghdad. And that's a big fear. The US government's putting a lot of pressure on Turkey at the moment to try and persuade them not to do that pipeline. For Turkey, they think, well, all our energy needs could actually be met through this. This could work really well for us. Turkey sees that um, Tehran is too influential over Baghdad. The Prime Minister of Turkey sees an opportunity to deal with the Kurdish Turks, the PKK, because he needs, he needs their support. So he needs their support in order to get agreement to change the constitution in Turkey. So you see a whole different relationship now between Ankara with its own Kurds. It's got also a very, very warm relationship with Iraq's Kurds. So that's one potential thing that's really ripping the country. The other one is the position of the Sunnis in Iraq. They have been, they are marginalized, they are discriminated against. Their politicians are pulling out of government. So this is another thing that has changed. They're no longer in government. There's no longer the extremists, you know, fighting, if you like, with the, with the politicians to win the narrative, to win the majority. Now that the politicians have been marginalized, when the Prime Minister uses the word terrorist or Ba'athist or Al-Qaeda, all Sunnis now think he's talking about them. So this and the events in Syria have really caused a massive effect. So Iraq is disintegrating, I think, at the moment. Can its disintegration be stopped? That's the question. Some will argue that you know, Iraq has gone back to authoritarianism, 
that the state is strong enough to hold the country together. So that's an argument you read in, in certain academics on Iraq. Others will say, no, the state isn't strong enough. That the Dawa party is not like the Ba'ath party, it doesn't have reach all around the country. The Iraqi security forces will fall apart. They can't be used to dominate the whole country. So those are the different arguments going on at the moment. What could stop it is if the elites actually get their act together and say, look, for the state, for the state, for the sake of the nation, let us reach some agreement. Because nobody wins from this. Iraq doesn't fall apart neatly or easily. People are intermarried, people have lived together. It doesn't fall apart easily at all. We're talking about more and more and more bloodshed. <coughs> So that's why there's talk about disbanding the government, holding new elections, putting a new government in place. But at the moment, Iran, who is a very influential player in Iraq, has got enough on its plate in Syria. And so Iran is saying, you know, we want to keep the status quo in Iraq, because can't, Iran can't cope with the problems in Syria and Iraq at the same time. So there seems not that much hope that the politicians will reach an agreement. Although today, <coughs> one of the Kurdish leaders, the Prime Minister, the Kurdish Prime Minister, is down in Baghdad to try and ease tensions. I wonder if you could comment on the impact of the policy of denazification on the current turbulent situation in Iraq. It seems to me that after World War II, in both Germany and Japan, uh, initial thoughts that it was a good idea to quickly backtracked upon for very pragmatic reasons that these intellectuals you had around the country. Uh, and I wonder if you see Iraq as a case of that type of uh, policy contributing to future instability. I mean, debathification obviously had a huge impact in the country in 0304. I mean, you saw decades of Saddam's rule, through decades of sanctions, the middle class, the elites, had left the country. And debathification was the final, you know, the final way of getting rid of the last skilled middle managers. But this was 10 years ago. The ministries, just because of the way the political settlement went, the ministries were handed out as fiefdoms to different political parties. So it's not that Iraq lacks skilled people. Iraq has got a very skilled diaspora. It has got skilled human resources. But how are you ever going to get them into those positions when the ministries now are there to hand out patronage to different political parties? It is one of the things being discussed in the parliament. They've tried to review the law. Now they're talking after 10 years. Why continue with it? But it is something that is just used for political purposes to undermine opposition. So it always comes up during elections. They'll say, he's a Baathist, he's a Baathist. Debathification became desunification. You'll see senior generals who are Shia, former Ba'ath Party, but few who are Sunnis. So it's a political, it's a political instrument. What are the lessons from Iraq that should inform our policy in Syria? And what do you think those should be? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I mean, in Syria, 
again, when we start to think in terms of good guys, bad guys, that's not helpful. Syria, there needs to be a political agreement. If we just, you know, do we arm the rebels? Which rebels? Who to defeat? What? If the Syrian opposition really had, you know, was thought of as inclusive, you'd see many more defections from the Syrian regime. There have been some defections, there haven't been mass defections. So you've got a civil war going on, and you've got multiple sides. There has to be some agreement. And that agreement, I think, needs to go on, on multiple levels. You need agreement between the US and Russia on what an acceptable solution would be. And that's not the US gets its way or Russia gets its way. It's an acceptable day after. It's in neither US or Russian interest to have jihadis, Salafi, Wahhabis running Syria. That's destabilizing for Russia, who's concerned about Chechnya, not the Czech Republic, Chechnya, <laughs> and its own, its own Muslim territories, and it's destabilizing for the US. It also means that the long term is not going to see Bashar al-Assad as president. So there needs to be a sense of the day after has Alawites included the administration minus Bashar, opposition groups minus Jebhat al-Nusra, you have that. Then there needs to be work to stop the proxy war that is going on with Iran, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi, all sending weapons in. Nobody wins. So to get them to think, okay, this is, oh, this is a decent outcome. Bashar has gone, a more inclusive government, this will be more stabilizing to the region. To stop that proxy war, not about arming one lot or another lot to try and stop all the fighting. And do serious work on mediating between those in the Alawite regime, minus Bashar, with the opposition. That was the big lesson from Iraq, that we excluded key constituents. We excluded people who were Sadrist. So we brought in exiles, put them in power, excluded Sadrists who'd been there all along, and thought that we were bringing in these Iranian proxies. We excluded Sunnis who'd been there all along. So they were given leaders that they didn't recognize, all based on a sectarian ethnic basis, so nobody's speaking for Iraq. Don't want to repeat that in Syria. So there has to be an inclusive political deal. You can then back that up with force, but you can't think that we can just go in there. I mean, Syria, it's obviously a big debate, should we do something or not? But you could also argue that intervention is coming to us, whether we like it or not. Because the way that Syria is going, is it just going to keep descending, descending, till you've got Al-Qaeda running half the country and Hezbollah running the other half? Who's going to take hold of the chemical weapons, how they might be used? So it is in our national interest to see that not happen. I fear that we won't have a strategy and we'll just get drawn in responsibly to all these things that happen. That's what I fear. And you can go back and think, well, why did Obama come out so early and say, Assad must go, and then do nothing, because everyone thought there was going to be an intervention like Libya. Funnily enough, in the region, they speak the same language, read the same media, so everyone thought it was going to be another Libya. And that's not what he meant. But it created an expectation 
when you can say you're going to do something, then do nothing, that has other unintended consequences. So no easy, no easy options for Syria, but the political piece has to be front and foremost. Thanks, Emma, for a terrific and fascinating talk. One thing I'm puzzled by, there's a little bit in your answer there, what the U.S. should be doing about Iraq right now. There seems to be two premises. One, you screwed it up before, no argument there. Two, the situation is um, tragic right now for the Iraqis. But if I put on my kind of geopolitical hat, what's so really bad about this from a clearly sort of realpolitik perspective? Um, you have a situation where the Sunni and Shias are fighting in this power vacuum. What it means is that the Sunnis have to rely more and more on us. The Shias in Iran, as you pointed out, are being dragged down into this battle with focusing on Syria. And you've got a situation where, especially with the decreasing energy dependence that the US has on the region, I don't, I don't really see what exactly the US should be doing. I mean, I would prefer from a kind of a humanitarian perspective that they weren't killing each other, but from a pure US national security interest, it's not totally clear, it's unfortunate, but what are you suggesting that we do, and why is this necessarily such a disaster for the US? If they're all focused on each other, they're gonna be dependent upon us even more. They're gonna be less focused on us. They're gonna be less focused on our ally, Israel. Um, and this doesn't necessarily seem, from a geopolitical perspective, to be the worst thing. I think that's what some people in the region fear, that it's in our interest to keep Iraq weak and destabilized. <laughs> I, you know, you can argue it in different ways. Iraq has always been this buffer. It was always this buffer between the Arab world and the Persian world. We kept things in a better balance. I think it is in our interest to see that better balance return. Because without that balance, if Iran is too powerful in Iraq, Iran has got its whole axis, right, keeping Syria through to Hezbollah to Lebanon. There's a whole axis of instability, which does affect Western interests. And I think that's dangerous for us. I think our efforts should be focused on trying to get a better balance in Iraq, rather than saying there's an elected democratic government, we all support it all the time. We need to be putting more pressure on it. We have leverage on it to make it reach a better status quo in Iraq. And we keep giving it intelligence to go after Al-Qaeda. We keep selling weapons, we keep doing all of this can influence things still. We help the central government broker its relations with Turkey, with Kurdistan. So we have ways and we have levers which we're not using to try and create a more stable situation inside Iraq. If the Kurds think Iraq is finished and disintegrating, they will move more towards independence. That creates, again, different instabilities within Iran, within Turkey, within Syria, different minority groups then get used as proxies by Saudi, by Iran. If there's a sense that Iran, you know, it's scary enough now, let alone if it's moving towards its nukes, what's that going to do 
with proliferation in the region, it is all becoming very, or less and less stable. America is seen as being on one side in a proxy war. So it's seen on being the side of the Sunnis against the Shia, the new bogeyman, the new enemy, now Iran. So while Saudi, you know, Saudi's treatment of its minority, Bahrain's treatment of its minorities, I think we could do far more to put pressure on them to give better treatment and better rights to their minorities so we look less like a sectarian player. In Syria, we look as sometimes as if we're on the side of Al-Qaeda against the Iranian-backed regime. This doesn't help. It's a perception issue, which is creating more and more and more instability. So it may be that the borders will change, but I think we have an interest in greater stability rather than this continuing, continuing violence. It undermines the whole sense of the US as promoting democracy around the world. This is what our initiatives do. It undermines, I mean, it just fuels more and more radicalism coming out of the Middle East. Wars in the Middle East have not tended to lead to nation building as they have in other contexts. So I don't see anything good coming from this continuous instability. I don't know if that answers, <coughs> you're not convinced. I just think we're in a period right now of reevaluating our geostrategic strategic priorities in the Middle East, both because for the very reason you described and because of our decreasing energy independence, or decreasing energy dependence, the region just doesn't matter to us as much anymore. And so I think that's been a big consequence. <coughs> I don't think from a geopolitical perspective that's all necessarily bad. It's definitely bad from a tragic on the ground perspective, but it seems to me the Gulf states have a big interest in making sure Iran doesn't get too powerful, as does Turkey, and they'll balance each other all out, and they'll come to us and decide for help. You said, you know, here we are supporting this bad Shia government in Iraq, and then this bad Sunni government in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. It seems like we're pretty good at supporting bad governments, regardless of sectarian divide, I just, I don't think we're ever going to win credibility with people in that region on that. The, the less of a footprint we have, the less we have to do with it, the, less, the more they own their own problems, the more I think it's to the better of U.S. interests. So, I, I mean, I wish we hadn't done it in the first place, and I, there's probably some obligation to decrease the level of humanitarian suffering, but I see no geopolitical interest to care about. I think the future of the region is really going to be determined by the players in the region. It's going to be determined by Saudi, Qatar, Turkey, Iran, much more than it is by us. But I think even though we're moving towards energy independence, that is not going to completely change our interest in the Middle East, because our allies are still dependent on energy from the Middle East. There will always be the question of Israel and Israel's security. And there's a long-standing relationship with certain regimes in the Arab world. So I think we'll still have those interests. I mean, I don't think anybody, except for Senator McCain, is really thinking of putting large US forces on the ground to stop things going on in Syria. But if those chemical weapons fall into the wrong hands, if Jordan starts to unravel, if Israel feels it's got to move in, we will be drawn into it whether we like it or not. And so what is our strategy 
for ensuring that we don't get sucked in into a situation that will have a whole other series of unintended consequences? What sort of outcome would be acceptable for us, and how do we work towards that? Well, Iraq's a test of that. We haven't been pulled in, so it is inevitable. I mean, if we're not going to get pulled in in Iraq, why would we get pulled in anywhere else? Iraq doesn't have the same weapons on potentially on the loose. And that is an argument that really does concern people. There is the fear of Hezbollah, there is the fear of Jebat al-Nusra. At the moment, that situation in Iraq, when the US military was in Iraq, the problems were contained with inside Iraq. Now with what's going on in Syria, there is a real fear that the border between Syria and Iraq has become increasingly porous. Sky, thanks for coming and visiting us in Austin. Uh, my name is Jason Brooks, and I'm a, a second-year master's student here at the LBJ School. I want to pick up on the same topic of interest and strategy. You mentioned in your talk the unraveling of the Sykes-Picot agreement and some of the implications this could have for the broader Middle East. And so maybe if you take David Fromkin's argument that that was the peace to end all peace in the post-World War I period, then uh, I try and look at are there any analogies that can help us think about what's going on in the broader Middle East today? And, and it seems to me like um, the civil war in Yugoslavia and the, the broader Balkans region after the Soviet Union basically collapsed in the post-Cold War period, you can start to see that a lot of what's going on are ethnic tensions and cleavages and sort of disputed territorial boundaries that are coming back to the surface as, as some of these dictatorships fall apart in the Middle East. And, and so how do we, I mean, how long are we going to continue to try and support these, uh, I guess, governing structures for the broader Middle East, and why should we continue to? Because it seems like it just constantly gets this problem. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I think it's important not to view the Middle East in terms of ancient hatreds and ethnic conflict. When we look back at how people lived together under the Ottoman Empire, you didn't have the sectarianism that we witnessed in Europe. You go to Baghdad, 2003, 30% of people were intermarried. The Kurds, when they were given their safe haven after 91, went to civil war against each other. So just because you happen to be Shia, who had a whole Shia region in the south, they'd be fighting there. It's more to do with the weakness of the state and power struggles. So while superficially it might look like an ethnic conflict, but it's not to do with religion, it's not to do with this so much. It's to do with power struggles in these very weak states. And there's lots of interesting reasons why these states remained weak. Who were the powers that took control of them? The whole sort of decolonization experience. That experience. So even if you decided, okay, all Sunnis will now live in this area. All Shia will live in that area. I mean, the tribes in the south of Iraq were Sunni. They became Shia. It was a way of avoiding paying taxes. It's much more fluid. Identity changes. People have been intermarried, intermixed for decades and decades and decades. So it's a very difficult thing to unravel. Whenever, you know, when the Biden, so-called Biden plan is put forward, dividing Iraq into these three parts, the Kurds were like, yes, please, that's what we want. But nearly all the others were like, no, we don't want that. The Iraq that we want to live in 
is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual society. That's the country they want to live in. It's the same thing to hear of people in Syria. So if you decided to, you know, I don't know what to do with children for mixed marriages, how you decide which way they go, it's not going to resolve the problems. If Iraq was all one type, if it was all Shia Arab, there would be still be huge problems. I guess my question is though, when do we start re-envisioning the territorial <coughs> status quo, not just where certain people live, but how are they all bound together? So these, so these are borders <laughs> drawn by Europeans in the post-World War I period that don't necessarily reflect historical reality of how the region was divided among people. No, because the region wasn't. Right. So you, know, you didn't have nation states before, but you can argue that these nation states have actually prevailed for a very long time. Is the best way to go forward like a European Union type arrangement when the borders matter less, it's free trade, free movement of peoples, rather than deciding where are we now going to put a new line? How do you decide where to put a boundary? Who decides? Normally boundaries and states come about through war. So are we, how could we even think of how we were going to come in and, and change this status quo? How much influence we have over that is changing. Um, so um, we'll just step aside and accept that the Middle East will continue to be important. What tangible policy options are out there? It sounds like the only thing that you proposed is kind of hope for change and hope something internally happens in Iraq to you know fix the system. Is there anything else we can do besides just trying to broker an agreement and ensure? I mean, there's nothing really I see that we can do anything tangible to take from this, except for case is bad. Always be kind of hope for something better to come out of within Iraq. Well, I, mean, I think there's more that can be done in trying to create balance between the different communities rather than saying our relationship is solely with central government. That would be a shift. <coughs> so there would be some, you know, will we give you F-16s? F-16s are supposed to be sold to Iraq in a year or so. How will those F-16s be used? Will we sell you this sorts of equipment? Will there be any conditionality? Will there be any incentives? So I think it would be standing back a bit and saying, look, we want to work with all communities to try and reach some agreement because you are heading in the direction back into a very nasty civil war again. The head of the United Nations in Iraq warned over the weekend, at a crossroads, you don't do something, this is what's going to happen. It's gone beyond crisis as, as usual. Will we recognize it's a problem? The narrative of the Obama administration is we left Iraq responsibly, we got the troops home. Iraq's sovereign state. Are we prepared to say things are not good in Iraq, mistakes have been made, we need to do more to broker a more inclusive government. We need to restrain some of the worst instincts of the Prime Minister. We need to bring in these different groups to build that, to put more effort in that. So that would be um, to this point about informing our potential action moving forward, I'm very interested in the point that you note about the importance of having agreement between all key stakeholders, stakeholders to form a, a stable order. Um, and I wonder if maybe you could speak a little bit more to that of how to navigate some of the um, complexities in a um, 
where you know stabilization operations are underway, you know, certainly one can understand um, the rationale of the argument to not work with solder. Certainly, we could understand the the opposite rationale for long-term stability, the need for um, inclusive uh, agreements. So, now with the benefit of hindsight, um, do you have thoughts on uh, other steps that might have been taken, how we might have done that better to, to formulate a more inclusive agreement and foundation for where we are now? I mean, right from the beginning, we demonized the Sadrists and the Ba'ath Party. The long-term stability of the country got to recognize that these political parties are weak. The political parties are not based on any agenda. They've got no experience. You haven't got a political culture that is about pluralism, that is about working together. It's all about he who grabs the state, controls everything. We thought elections was the way you reach legitimacy. But behind the elections, you've got the main power brokers. It's difficult now, but the effort should be on, again, getting the main power brokers together to say, look, this is the way your country is going. What are you going to do to stop that? And what can we do to help that? Because when the US is seen to be on one side, it doesn't help contain the worst instance. It doesn't help create balance. We need to be working far more to create that better balance. It's very interesting that through this recent period, it's Moktada al-Sada who stood in the middle. While Maliki has moved more towards sectarianism and more towards Iran, it's Moktada who's actually said, we are all Iraqis, reaching out to the Sunnis, reaching out to the Kurds. He's doing this because he's terrified that Maliki will come after him next. So it's in his own interest to do this all this whole power struggle going on within the Shia community. But it's, you know, it's not just about dealing with central government. We need to be really working to try and help balance, create a better balance in Iraq before one of the outcomes of the 2003 invasion could be Iraq, Syria, all of this collapsing into failed states. At the back. Yes, uh, thank you, Dr. Scott, for your incredibly candid and, and frank assessment. But if I've heard you correctly, you've made an incredibly strong indictment against the entire invasion uh, from 10 years ago. Uh, again, if, if I've heard you correctly, uh, in the last 10 years in the US, the debate has all been about how the, the invasion was done incorrectly. I mean, we've, we've already, of course, addressed a lot of this, you know, whether or not it was be gasified or occupation of, of Iraq or whether or not they used a whole lot more troops or less troops or you know which troops to support. But again, if I heard you correctly, this, this is a whole lot more. Things have gone downhill and this was a whole lot more than just not enough troops or you know who to get behind. So again, you know, it, it appears that had we known everything we've known now 10 years ago, could anybody have really supported this entire project? I mean, the difficulty, you know, is I never want to go back to say, oh, in 2003, if we'd only done this, this, and this, it would have all worked out well. That's not the point that I'm making at all. The point I'm trying to make is these interventions will always have unintended consequences. Sometimes there are real national security interests that make you determined to intervene somewhere. You've got that whole box of unknown, unintended consequences. But once you decide to do it, how to have a strategy, the right resources, and being much, much, much more 
limited in what you actually try to do, to be much more candid and much more humble about what we can influence and what we can achieve. And that focus, I suggest, should be more on trying to build inclusive peace agreements. Because when you exclude key components, those excluded are going to try and bring it down. And so whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iraq, whether it's any of these places, to understand that the violence is political violence, not just good guys, bad guys. Lots of bad guys, undeniable. Not that many good guys, even. So to frame it differently, frame it more in terms of civil war, frame it in terms of a weak state, that's what leads to the civil war. And then look at what it is we might be able to help do to bring about better balance. I would never go back and argue in 2003, if only we'd had more troops, everything would have been fine. It's, I don't want to go down that far. One more. You know, to me, the American public has a very short attention span. And today we've got Afghanistan, we've got Iran, we've got Syria, we've got Israeli-Palestine problem, not counting all the domestic problems that we have. And I think that this is so far off the American radar that it's way down on the priority level. And I don't think it's going to get any attention. We've been there, done that, we're out of there. They're on their own. Syria, we've got to worry about those weapons you were talking about. So I think in the end, it's going to be what is the most important thing to us at the time? I think you're right. I think you're right. But I also think people don't make the linkage that what happened in 2003 has led to the resurgence of Iran and a proxy war that is now also taking place inside Syria. People just don't make the linkages. What is happening in Iraq is going to affect Syria and Iran. What's happening in Syria is having huge impact on Iraq. So all these things have a connection. When we try and just look at something very simplistically, without seeing it in a regional context, we're missing the different ways that we can actually help stabilize or have any influence at all. We always react to a crisis. It's got yes. to reach the crisis before we react. React without a strategy. Tactical responses without strategy. Since we left Iraq 16 months ago, I think much of what's going on today we would have predicted inside the country. Uh, continued uh, ethnic strife, uh, inability of security forces to contain violence completely, but that it was, uh, they were able to contain it short of the civil war. But one of our big concerns was. saw there were influences direct from Iran into Baghdad, uh, and, and they were preparing for our imminent departure, and their ability to increase or influence things politically, economically, etc. During your recent visits, did you get a sense that the Iranian influence was generally positive, um, and that there wasn't this, this fear of what was going on and what influence was coming from, from the East? Uh, 
definitely, as you point out, there's definitely different sorts of Iranian influence. Some is the natural religious tourism, the natural trade that should take place between any countries. The unnatural influence is the training of militias and influence over the political elites. So the influence that Iran has today over Iraq's elites is immense. Every time elites have trouble with Prime Minister Maliki, what do they do? They go over to Tehran to say, oh, we've got trouble with him. So they're not trying to resolve these issues themselves. They believe that Iran has this influence over them. With the different militia groups, you can see that they are being there like a security policy, not only for the prime minister, but also for Iran. If there, you know, if there is a decision to attack Iran, if things go bad in Syria, you have these different elements that are there to cause chaos, that will attack Western interests, whether it's the embassies, whether it's the oil, any foreigner around. It won't just be contained within Iraq. They are trained, if you like. You can see these elements that are working inside Syria. <coughs> so Iraqi Shia elements have been trained in Iran that are now working inside Syria to help the regime. So those elements do exist. When the situation is calm, they are part of the political process. When the situation is not calm, then they're working in, in nefarious ways. And some will argue that it was our presence in Iraq that dragged in Iranian influence, and it was a counter to the US. Now there's no US presence there. There's no buffer, if you like, to the Iranian influence. Turkey sees itself as the buffer, and Turkey is providing more support to Kurdistan and to the Sunni parts of the country. But it's almost aligning now back to the old Ottoman versus Safavid struggle it's now sort of realigning in that way. But people seeing it much more as an existential struggle with maybe the different groups in Iraq are proxies to those big powers. That's yet to happen, but it's certainly what people think about and what people talk about. Great, Emma, thank you so much. This is a fascinating